If you're able, would you please stand for reading of God's Word? This morning I'll be reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. Jesus said, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. What is prayer? I've always been struck just how simple the answer to that question really is. Just how innate the concept of prayer is to us as human beings. How even an atheist knows what it means to pray when circumstances get difficult. Simply put, prayer is talking to God. But how do we pray? And why do we pray? Those questions are different altogether. This morning our passage is taken from the Sermon on the Mount. And there in the middle of this fantastic sermon that Jesus preaches, he teaches on prayer. And as he's teaching us to pray, he makes this statement. He says, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, that's an incredible statement about the character of God. An incredible statement about God's foreknowledge, about his sovereignty, about the powerful way that he knows all things. But if you think about that statement that God the Father knows what we need before we even ask him, it raises some questions, doesn't it? Like, if God knows what we need, why bother praying? If God is sovereign and all-powerful and he's going to do his will according to his will, then does prayer even matter? Does prayer actually work? This morning, as we look at the Lord's prayer together, what I want us to see is that not only does prayer work, prayer works in a way that we perhaps least expect. Prayer works in us. When Jesus is teaching about prayer, he first starts with how you should not pray. And rather than talking about specific prayers, he talks about people. First, he says, when you pray, verse 5, don't be like the hypocrites. Today, perhaps that would be 
don't be like the cultural Christians, these church people that just kind of go through the motions of Christianity. They, they pray out loud so that others hear them and think, wow, that's a really good Christian. Man, he really knows how to pray. Man, she's really good at praying. Don't be like them, Jesus says. Don't pray in a self-righteous way so that others would listen to you. But he doesn't just stop there. He then turns his attention to the exact opposite kind of people. He says, don't pray like the Gentiles. Don't pray like the pagans. Don't pray just thinking that this is some kind of magic spell, some kind of mantra that if you just repeat the right words, then maybe God will listen to you. He says, no, don't, don't pray like that either. And then he says something that I want you to hear this morning. Notice what Jesus says. He says, pray then like this. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus does not say, pray this word for word. He does not say, commit this prayer to memory and just recite it. No, he says, pray like this. In other words, the Lord's prayer is a gift to the church. Not only that we would recite it and speak it word for word, but that it might serve as a model prayer. That the Lord's prayer would actually teach us not only how to pray, but it would teach us who we are as God's people when we come to pray. You see, I think that a failure to pray is actually a failure of identity. And this has worked itself out in my own life time and time again. That when I fail to pray, when I forget to pray, it's really because deep down I've forgotten who I am. I've forgotten that I am a child of the living God and that my Father delights to hear my prayers. And so this morning, the Lord's Prayer is a gracious reminder that prayer is not only talking to God, prayer is talking with God. And Jesus has given us the Lord's Prayer to teach us, to remind us of who we are as God's people when we pray. So the first way we see this we see this, that Jesus teaches us to pray as sons and daughters of the King. I want you to look with me at the first line of the Lord's Prayer. It's there in your bulletin in verse 9. Jesus, uh, Jesus teaches us to pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What I want you to notice first is that prayer begins not with personal petitions, but with worship and praise. The very first ask of the Lord's prayer is, hallowed be thy name. In other words, God, make your name holy, make your name great. And the reason why we pray that is not because there's some deficiency in the name of God, but because there's a deficiency in us recognizing his holiness and greatness and power and beauty and strength. 
And so we pray, hallowed be your name, because we need his name to be hallowed in our hearts. That we cannot really begin praying unless we recognize who we are praying to. That worship must be the thing that guides and sustains our prayers. And so this morning I ask you, what is the content of your prayer? When you pray, let's imagine that someone overhears your prayers. Who are they going to learn about? Are they going to learn about God and his character? Are they going to learn more about you and what you want? Another way to ask that question is this. What do your prayers reveal about what you worship? Are the bulk of your prayers centered on the things of this life? Or do you first center your prayer on the person and character and glory and majesty of God? Do you begin praying, Father, hallowed be your name? His name cannot be hallowed unless you know who he is. And so the Lord's prayer begins with this word, Father. Our Father in heaven. You cannot pray unless you are first a son or a daughter of God. And you cannot be a son or daughter of God unless God, by his grace, sent his son to die in your place so that you might become his sons and daughters. In other words, the very first word of the Lord's prayer is an address that is so profound that we, by God's grace, could call him father is only possible because of the death of his son. U.S. Census Bureau estimates that 19.7 million children do not have a father at home. To put that in perspective, that means one in four children in America today will grow up fatherless. I know some of you grew up without a dad. I know others of you grew up with a dad, but you feel as though you grew up fatherless because of the wound that he left. The truth is, every one of us, spiritually speaking, grew up fatherless. Not because our heavenly father abandoned us, but because we abandoned him. It's as if we ran away from home. We rebelled against our heavenly father in our sin, and we said, you know what? No thanks. I don't need you. I don't need your provision. I don't need your lordship or your authority. I'm going to go my own way. That, friends, is what we call sin, rebellion against God as our father. And yet God, by his grace, because he loved you so much, sent his own son to die in your place so that you and I, who were once fatherless, might become the family of God. The Lord's Prayer begins acknowledging this gracious reality that we relate to God as sons and daughters. But it doesn't stop there. Not only is God our father, God is also our king. The Lord's prayer continues. Verse 10, your kingdom come. 
Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are sons and daughters through Christ of the kingdom, of the kingdom of God. What this means for our prayers is that God is interested in building his kingdom first, not yours and mine. How often is there an agenda to the way that you and I pray? How often do you and I bring our own little kingdoms to God, asking that he would bless them? We spend so much time and energy building up these little kingdoms in our own names, and then we have the audacity to go before God and say, God, would you make it happen? And if you're like me, so often you find your prayers going what seems like they're unanswered and you're filled with disappointment. Perhaps what the Lord's prayer is teaching you this morning is that maybe they're not unanswered because the truth is God answers every prayer. So maybe the answer is no. Maybe the answer is his kingdom come and not yours. And so the way that we should approach God when we bring our request to him is to constantly lay them at his feet, to bow before him as our king, and to say, not my will, but yours be done. Now, there are many Christians today who believe that that prayer is a prayer of weakness, a prayer of faithlessness, that we, we should not come to God and give a request and then say, your will be done, that there's dissonance there. They would have you believe that you should pray boldly and just leave it there. That to pray boldly and to say, but your will be done, almost negates a prayer of faith. But what I want you to see, brothers and sisters and friends, praying your will be done is a prayer of faith. Let me show you what I mean. Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed, went to go pray with his disciples in a garden called Gethsemane. He knew what he was about to face, he knew that he was going to go to the cross. He knew that though he was sinless, he was about to take on the sin of the entire world. He knew that the wrath of God was about to fall on him instead of you and me. And so Matthew 26, verse 39, we're told that Jesus fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. When we bring our request to God and say, not my will, but yours be done, it's a prayer of faith, a prayer of trust, a prayer of saying, God, I'm laying bare before you my heart and my desires, but I'm recognizing that you are king and I am not. So not my will, but yours be done. Not only do we pray as sons and daughters of the kingdom, but the second thing I want you to see is that the Lord's prayer teaches us to pray as beggars. And so in the same breath that we say, not my will, but yours be done, we should bring all of our needs, all of our wants, all of our desires before God. He already knows them. We should be open and honest with him 
We should cast our burdens on him. Why? Because he cares for us. And so the Lord's Prayer not only teaches us that we should bring our needs and our requests to God, but that we should pray boldly. We should pray big prayers. And so this is how the Lord's Prayer teaches us in verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Now on its surface, this might not seem like a bold and big prayer. When you hear this, pray for daily bread, you might think, well, that just, that seems very common, very ordinary. I mean, shouldn't we think about praying for bigger things, bolder things? So often, this is how we treat prayer, that we we tend to pray when things are at their worst. We tend to pray when we recognize that we don't have control. We tend to pray when we need help. On March 11th, 2020, the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a global pandemic. Even scarier around that time, the NBA canceled their season. That's when I think we as Americans begin to actually pay attention to this. But around that same time, worldwide, there began to be a phenomenon. Worldwide Google searches for prayer hit an all-time high. The highest it's ever been recorded. Why? Because people found themselves at the end of the rope. They could no longer fake being in control. They knew they needed someone to step in. So often, this is the way that you and I pray, but the Lord's prayer teaches us to pray even bolder and bigger than that. Give us this day our daily bread recognizes that not just during a time of pandemic or when we find ourselves spiraling out of control, when we recognize that we need help, it's not only in those moments that God has called us to pray. Because the truth is, none of us are controlled, ever. And every single one of us needs his help all the time. Give us this day our daily bread recognizes that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. And so this morning, if you're saying, well, I've got lots of bread. I have a whole pantry full of bread. Why would I need to pray for daily bread? Well, I want you to imagine what it might be like if you didn't. What if you didn't have bread? What if you were starving? What if you were hungry? That's how the people of God found themselves wondering in the wilderness, in the desert during the Exodus. They were starving, they were hungry, and God gave them bread miraculously from heaven. It was called manna. And what they found is that if they tried to keep more of this bread to themselves to save it for later, it would spoil after only one day. In other words, it was daily bread. Why did God do it that way? The book of Deuteronomy tells us he did it that way so that man would know that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So to pray, God give us this day our daily bread, is to recognize that he is God that we are not, and that we have come to him as beggars. We are empty-handed, and everything comes from him. Not only do we come as beggars, but the Lord's prayer also teaches us to come as debtors. 
In verse 12, the Lord's Prayer continues, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, one of my favorite things to do in church is when we do the Lord's Prayer, we don't actually print it in the bulletin. This is where everybody gets tongue-tied. Because if you grew up in church at all, odds are you may have grown up saying a different word for the word debts. Some of you may have grown up saying, forgive us our sins. Others of you, maybe it's forgive us our trespasses. But here at PCPC, we say, forgive us our debts. Why? Because that's the word that Jesus uses. And it's a great word for sin. You see, when we come in prayer, not only are we empty-handed, but we're coming at a deficit. We are coming indebted to God. Why? Because of our sin. We owe God everything. The Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. What that means is that you and I who are sinful, we owe him our very lives. And not only that, but Jesus died in our place. We are debtors. Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul says, so then brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, but to live according to the flesh you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We are debtors. And so when we pray, we should bring our debts to God. What does that look like? When we pray, we should confess our sins. How often do you confess your sins when you pray? If you were with us a couple weeks ago, we talked about the importance of confession during our corporate worship. But not only is confession important for us as a body, Confession is important for us as individuals. And so when we pray, I encourage you to name your sins specifically. To name them even out loud. Why? Well, not so you might feel shame by them, but so that you would recognize that every one of those sins, if you know Jesus Christ, was nailed to the cross. And you bear them no more. To come and pray as debtors, recognizing is that your debt has been paid. Jesus purchased your sin for himself by taking it in his body on the tree and rising again in victory so that you could have forgiveness. So the fourth and final thing, the last way that the Lord's tape, uh, prayer teaches us to pray, the Lord's prayer teaches us to pray as conquerors. Verse 13, the Lord's prayer ends this way in the gospel of Matthew. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lead us not to temptation. Now it's obvious that we are surrounded by temptation. In fact, our culture markets with temptation. And so you and I have really one of three options. The first is just to give in to it. And that might seem crass to you this morning, but the truth is we give in to temptation every single day. The second option, and sadly so many Christians do this, is to fight temptation on your own. To fight temptation with your own will, your own strength 
your own flesh. It may work for a moment, but it never works in the end. But the third and the only way that we can truly fight temptation is through prayer. The Lord's Prayer teaches us this. Lead me not into temptation. This is doing battle against the temptation that we face every single day. When you think about that prayer, it's kind of a strange prayer. Lead me not into temptation as if there was some sort of possibility that God would lead us into temptation. Why would we pray that? I mean, God, are you really going to lead us into temptation? Do we really need to always pray? God, you know, just in case we're all clear, don't do that. What is this talking about? There's something deeper here. To pray, lead us not to temptation, is to recognize that there is only one man who God ever led into temptation and withstood it. And his name was Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 4 tells us of the time that the Spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And every temptation that the devil threw at Jesus was designed to get him to go away from the cross, to prove his worth, his value, and his authority apart from the cross. Every temptation that you and I face does the same thing, brothers and sisters. It's trying to keep us away from the cross. And so to pray, lead me not into temptation, is to pray, God, don't do to me what you did to your son Jesus, because I'll give in. But thanks be to God that in Christ we are more than conquerors. Jesus was led into the wilderness by God himself to be tempted because he withstood every temptation. And he went to the cross sinless on your behalf so that you might have victory over sin and death. And so when we pray, we can pray with confidence and with boldness before the throne of God because in Jesus Christ, in his death and in his resurrection, we are more than conquerors. And as Paul teaches us, Jesus Christ is now risen. He is seated at the right hand of God, and in victory, he now lives to intercede for you. So what does that mean for us this morning? It means that when we pray, Jesus is praying with us. When we pray, Jesus is praying that we would know who we are as sons and daughters, that Jesus is praying that every one of our needs would be met as the debtors and beggars that we truly are. That Jesus is praying that we would truly trust in his death and resurrection for our salvation, that we would know what it means to walk in forgiveness. That Jesus is joining with us in prayer that we might, along with him, be victors, be conquerors, and with boldness and confidence, come before the throne of grace and pray, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, by his grace, has invited you and me to pray, not as a duty, but as a delight that we might know what it means to be the children of God.
Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you that we can pray to you as our Father. We pray now as we sing this final hymn, as we lift our voices to you, that you would restore all of the broken parts of how we relate to you so we might know what it means to pray again. That you would heal any part of us that does not recognize that we are sons and daughters. Any part of us that does not see you as Father. And will we come to you this week in prayer, enjoying our communion and our conversation with you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.